everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate for governor. I'm, I am the Green Party candidate for governor. I keep saying that. I was the Green Party candidate for president as well as the Social Party, Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on. So today I just want to say a few words about uh, what's going on with uh, ballot access and voter intimidation and a little bit about COVID and then get to your questions and comments. I mean, first thing I'd like to report is good news for a change. The Green Party in New Mexico successfully turned in a petition. It was certified by the Secretary of State on Thursday that they're back on the ballot. And uh, we've heard of no challenges no lawsuits coming from the Democrats. New Mexico's got a pretty easy petition compared to a lot of states, but that's good news. And it's just encouraging that, you know, Greens are still out there, you know, fighting for ballot access. Uh, we only needed one half of a percent, I think, in New Mexico in the presidential race to keep the ballot line. And we ended up, you know, really close, but just short. And, you know, 2020 was a tough year. Anybody but Trump, most progressive-minded people felt they had to vote for Biden. Uh, and really didn't factor in whether the state was close or not. But um, in any case, New Mexico's back on the ballot. Congratulations to them. Uh, back here in New York, I've talked here before about how they changed the laws, tripled the votes you need to get on the ballot or keep your ballot line, tripled the signatures you need, doubled the frequency you have to meet those standards. So all the parties that didn't cross endorse Trump or Biden lost their ballot lines in 2020. So this year, there were seven efforts to uh, put uh, additional candidates on the ballot tickets for governor and lieutenant governor, and they all failed because you need 45,000 signatures in 42 days, which from my research is the hardest comparable petition in the world. The nearest I could find was if you want to run as an independent for the state Duma in Russia, like their Congress from an obelisk, which is like their states. And the uh, representative of the state Duma is the highest office from an obelisk. There it's 15,000 signatures in 45 days. And very few are able to do that. Um, New York's old standard was 15,000 in 42 days. And I've tried to get a, a law introduced to change back to the old standard. And I joke with the legislators, you know, we just want to get back to the Putin standard. And they chuckle and they say we're right, but they're not going to do it until the election's over because they don't want the governor and the chair of the state Democratic Party who pushed this exclude ballot exclusion law uh, through the state legislature. They don't want them on their back while they run for re-election. So here we are. So on uh, yesterday, uh, we had a motion before the uh, Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals to uh, uh issue an injunction to put us on the ballot because we're likely to win this case. We've had uh, working through the courts for a couple of years. Uh, we also asked, if you don't do that, expedite the process of making a decision on our uh, lawsuit against the ballot exclusion law. And uh, they granted that, but by granting that, exped expediting it means uh, they'll, they'll schedule it when they get back in session in September uh, early in the fall, hopefully. But that's getting up pretty close to the election. So it doesn't look like we're going to get uh, relief in the courts. And so what we have in New York is, you know, all these seven uh, petitions were rejected. None of us got enough signatures. None of us got 45,000 qualified signatures or even 45,000 raw signatures. So um, this will be the first election since official ballots started to be issued in 1891, except for 1946, when only the Democratic and Republican candidates will be on the ballot. And for progressives in New York, they don't have a choice. The, the governor, the Democrat, Kathy Hochul, is a cautious neoliberal corporate centrist, and the Republican is a Trump Republican on the extreme right. So if we don't get on the ballot, at least, and we doesn't look like we are, we're going to run a writing campaign. So at least progressives can voice their support to, for things like a Green New Deal for New York, single payer health care, uh, affordable housing, including a law to uh, 
require good cause for evictions and another one to a program to expand public housing, a state public housing program to create affordable units at lower cost than subsidizing private developers, things like that. So uh, we're going to keep fighting, even though we're probably not going to be on the ballot. And then I know everybody's heard about what happened in North Carolina. They had enough signatures. The Board of Elections voted three to two in a partisan vote to deny their petition. And as that was being done, the North Carolina press started reporting what the Greens were finding was that the Democrats were out there uh, harassing and bullying and browbeating people into removing their signatures from the Green Party petition. And this is apparently still going on because the Greens are going to go to court over this uh, Board of Elections decision. And they found, among other things, that this Democratic-led campaign, and it's uh, led by the Democratic uh, Congressional or Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee under the auspices of the law firm, the Elias Law Group. Now, that's Mark well, Elias. That's Mark Elias, who many people know is uh, the lawyer that took on Trump in his phony election fraud lawsuits with respect to the 2020 election and beat him 45 lawsuits or 46 lawsuits. Um, and he's also, uh, through that law group, um, challenging Republican voter suppression and election subversion laws in the states. But there's a dark side to Mark Elias. He has spent a lot of his career fighting to keep the Greens or independent left candidates off the ballot. It seems he's really concerned more about Democrats than democracy. And so he's leading this charge in North Carolina. His activities in this regard go back to the unprecedented before or since assault on Ralph Nader's ballot access in 2004, where they had uh, 24 law firms, 90 lawyers sued uh, to get the Nader uh, removed from the ballot in 18 states. And uh, there was a lot of litigation around that. He was unfortunately, you know, pretty successful. And we got warned during the 2020 presidential campaign by Richard Winger from Ballot Access News that Elias was going after our petitions around the country. And, and as we know, they did in Wisconsin and Montana, where they also intimidated voters into removing their signatures from a petition, uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, so while the, De the Republicans, you know, want to suppress the vote and set it up so they can count the votes and steal elections, uh, the Democrats suppress the vote by suppressing the Green Party. We know that from exit polls in 2016, that 61% of the Green Party's candidates' voters, Jill Stein's voters, would have stayed home if she was not on the ballot. That same exit poll showed 55% of the Libertarian candidate, uh, Gary Johnson's voters, would have stayed home. So third parties bring new voters out. And if you suppress those parties, you suppress those voters. So the, the Democrats are all you know, self-righteous about how evil the Republicans are with their voter suppression schemes. But the Democrats are doing the same thing in a different way by party suppression. And of course, they've been feckless in, in getting voter rights and uh, election protection laws passed in Congress. They could lift the filibuster with a simple majority in the Senate, the 50 Democratic senators plus Vice President Harris could change the rule and they could lift the filibuster on voting rights, on election protection, not to mention abortion rights or climate protection or these care economy programs, or how about Supreme Court reform? But they're not getting anything done because uh, they won't take on the filibuster when they have the power to do so. So, you know, the Republicans are doing the same thing in terms of uh, trickery and intimidation of voters. Uh, we had a case come out this uh, week uh, in Houston, Texas, where uh, Republicans were out there with an affidavit kind of form uh, in a black community in Houston, Texas, going to voters and asking them to sign that they didn't uh, submit a fraudulent ballot in 2020. That's voter intimidation, you know, when, and, and uh, they have represented them as being from the Board of Elections, just like some of these Democrats did to 
people that wanted to get off petitions in North Carolina. So both parties were playing this game of trickery. And uh, and then we had, you know, in March, a lawsuit that was filed by the NACP, Mi Familia Vota, and the League of Women Voters against a Republican group that had made armed home visits to Latino and Black homes in Colorado and other states, basically uh, saying they're watching them about fraudulent balloting and visibly taking photos of their homes. That's voter intimidation. So uh, this is being done by both parties. But, you know, we can't let the Democrats get away with what they're doing with a self-righteous uh, criticism of the Republicans who deserve it. But then the Democrats don't do anything about it and turn around and do it to the Green Party. So, you know, we're in a, a crisis of democracy and it's getting worse. Um, you know, the GOP is setting it up to steal elections. This case, the Supreme Court agreed to take out of North Carolina, which is not only about gerrymandering, but the Republicans out of North Carolina are arguing for a formerly fringe uh, legal doctrine called independent state legislature uh, doctrine that basically says the election clause of the uh, U.S. Constitution says state legislatures uh, can determine how elections are run, federal elections are run in their states. And what the Republicans are setting up is they can basically then decide who wins, no matter what the voters say, or a governor says, or the state courts or the state constitution. This independent state uh, legislature doctrine says it's the sole power of the state legislature. So what we should be worried about is if in these Republican-controlled states, and, and the Supreme Court's going to hear this probably decide next year, 2023. So in 2024, uh, if the Republicans lose the popular vote for the presidential electors for the Electoral College, uh, this, their legislature could just say, well, we're sending this slate, which is for our candidate, the Republican candidate and steal the presidential election. I mean, that's how crazy this has gotten. Um, so, you know, it goes back to what I've been saying since we finished that 2020 election. Top of our agenda has got to be a pro-democracy agenda. And the things we need to raise that are not even being discussed, really, is fair ballot access legislation at both the state and federal level, ranked choice voting for executive offices, and proportional ranked choice voting uh, to get proportional representation in state legislatures. Proportional ranked choice voting means you rank your choices among uh, many candidates from multi-member districts. And that way you get proportional representation of all the parties in the state legislature or in Congress. There's a bill uh, introduced in the Congress called the Fair Representation Act. Unfortunately, you know, it has only nine sponsors, only seven of the Progressive Caucus, none of the members of the squad. That's something we should be pressuring uh, particularly those progressives and those squad members to get behind. So that's, I think, you know, got to be our response to this crisis of democracy. The other thing I'll just comment on is, you know, the, the bipartisan approach now to COVID is uh, to just live with it and really live with it without doing anything about it. You know, like uh, wearing masks where it's appropriate, getting vaccinated, they just seem to be, you know, we're going to let it take its course. And meanwhile, the public health, you know, uh, people are warning about a new wave. This BA5 variant of Omicron is the most contagious yet, the most transmissible yet. Uh, but people are not getting vaccinated. They're not getting boosted. The uh, children's vaccine has been out for about a month now. And I saw a report this morning that only 2% of eligible children have got vaccinated. And uh, I think, you know, we're, this is all a consequence of this right-wing assault on science. And of course, you know, the anti-vax, uh, you know, during COVID has been part of that. But, you know, they're attacking uh, climate change, you know, saying it's a hoax. Uh, they're attacking the teaching of evolution in schools. Um, they got this don't say gay legislation in Florida and similar bills in other states that basically uh, deny the existence or the normality of LGBT people. And uh, they don't want to teach uh, 
the racial history of our country, which is what happened. They just want to deny the reality with this so-called uh, critical race theory uh, bogeyman, which, you know, that comes out of law schools. It's, it's something that's not taught in the schools, but, you know, that's a cover for going after, you know, teaching black history or Latino history or any uh, of the real history of this country or the full history of this country. So it's an attack on science and reality. And uh, so, you know, how do we fight back against, against that? Um, I think we can do a lot at the local level. We can win school board and city and town council races. Greens have proven that. Those races are local. You can get to the voters by door knocking in most cases, small districts. And, you know, our record is very good running those races. I'm just saying we need to up our game on that and run a lot more people, get a lot more people elected and create a political base for then taking these issues on to the state and federal levels. So it's about all I got for opening up today. So I'm looking forward to your, your comments and your questions. Amy L. Sachs, is Biden's executive order anything but window dressing? Um, that's with respect to abortion rights. And I haven't studied it in detail, but that's what I'm seeing in the headlines and, you know, just skimming the stories that uh, it doesn't have, it's really not going to do what needs to be done, which is to codify Roe v. Wade. And that's one of those issues that uh, it passed in the House, got filibustered in the Senate, and the Democrats in the Senate are not willing to lift the filibuster for this. And, you know, Biden finally said, well, he was willing to lift the filibuster for this. He's been kind of AWOL on the filibuster question. But he said that after Senator Leahy of Vermont broke his hip and had to get an operation. He's out of commission for a while. So, uh, you know, now they don't have the votes they had before. Um, so the other thing that's interesting, again, I haven't studied the details, and I know it's legally controversial and the lawyers will have to sort this out. But the federal government has property in all the states where they might could have performed abortions preempting state laws against abortion. And what I'm hearing is, you know, the Biden administration thinks that's too legally tenuous. He would go to court and, and couldn't be affected. But uh, the people advocating it, you know, are basically saying you got to be aggressive and, you know, really push this issue instead of, you know, the, the Democrats' main response to the Supreme Court decision was to issue fundraisers. I mean, that's what I heard from the Democrats. They didn't say go out on the street. They didn't, you know, uh, you know, what they said was give us money so we can elect more Democrats. Uh, so in the future, we can do what in the past we had the power to do and didn't do, which was to codify Roe. So um, we were not getting a good response from the Democrats. And, uh, you know, we got We got to do better. Amy L. Sachs, let me guess, the quote-unquote progressive Working Families Party isn't standing up for an, any other off-road party. I keep hearing about their supposedly fabulous new leadership. Laugh out loud. Yeah, I would laugh if it, if it was funny, but it's not. Um, here in New York, as soon as their endorsed candidate in the Democratic primary, Jemani Williams for governor, lost, they immediately put the corporate centrist, Kathy Hochul, on the ballot. And in fact, in April, they said they would do that because, as they said, we never spoil elections. Um, what that did to Jemani Williams by announcing it in April was tell progressives, you know, Working Families Party doesn't think he can win, so we're not even going to try. And we're telling Hochul right now, uh, leave us alone, don't harass us, because we're going to put you on the ballot. Um, so, you know, maybe that's their inside game. They think they can kiss up to Hochul, but um, she doesn't have a progressive bone in her body. She is a, you know, Buffalo area uh, politician who was very conservative as an elected official in Buffalo, including as a member of Congress. For example, she had an A rating from the National Rifle Association uh, when she was in Congress. Of course, now she's all about, you know, gun control because 
most people in New York are for it. And so she's done some stuff as governor. But what that tells you is she's a she's an opportunist and she will go with the polls, but she's not going to lead on any of these uh, progressive issues that progressives in the state are demanding about a single payer health care system, a stronger climate program, um, protection for tenants and affordable housing, which is a huge crisis in New York, uh, protecting immigrants and so forth. So, uh, yeah, the Working Families Party is really a little, you know, pressure group on the Democratic Party. And, you know, in my experience, they're more worried about fighting the Greens than fighting Republicans. I had the experience about 10 years ago. They sent in a, in a year, it was an off-year election when there weren't many, uh, you know, big elections around the state or competitive elections around the state. They came into a city council race here where about 2,000 people would vote. And they brought in, you know, about 20 people to canvas uh, to defeat me running against the Democrat. I lost by 98 votes. Uh, 4%. Uh, it was a close race. And I ended up with 48%. And the newspaper asked them, well, why did you pick on Howie Hawkins? Because you had all these working families, Democrats running against Republicans all over the county. And the lame excuse of the upstate uh, field organizer for the Working Families Party was, well, we have limited resources, so we got to pick our fights. But he had said on a Facebook uh post at 2 a.m. in the morning. He probably had a few beers. I was out at UPS sweating, unloading trucks. He said he would rather see a Tea Party Republican elected than Howie Hawkins of the Green Party, which tells you that the Working Families Party is more interested in, in uh, keeping the Democrats, uh, well, de de eliminating any challenge to the Democrats from their left. So uh, they have a monopoly on the center-to-left vote. And so that's, you know, what my experience of the Working Families Party is. Um, they rarely challenge Democrats. They'll, they'll run some, they'll primary some Democrats, but if they lose, they back the, the you know, the machine Democrat every time. Frankie Lee, how, Howie, how can the, uh, the Greens get some legal help finding these unfair ballot laws. Well, I think one thing we need to do is, is start cultivating a stable of election lawyers that will work with us. I mean, we do have some. Oliver Hall is probably the most prominent, the most experienced. He goes back to fighting for Nader's ballot access in 2004 to the Center for Competitive Elections. He's helped us some in New York. He's the lawyer working with the North Carolina Green Party. And we need to help people like him find lawyers in our own communities who are election lawyers or willing to learn election law and take cases so that we can defend ourselves in court. A lot of times uh, the Democrats who have the resources will challenge us and they're frivolous challenges. And, uh, you know, I had experience in one petition where I had the signatures um, and I needed fifteen hundred. This is a citywide election, councilor at large. And I was 17 short by the Board of Elections count. So I had to go to court. And I had won a case on behalf of another one of our candidates about six years earlier, uh, based on the fact that the petitions are like an affidavit. The voter says where their current residence is. And those residences were still within the district. So they were good signatures. But the Board of Elections didn't have that current address. So I had plenty of signatures when I went to court and I would have won, except I didn't know, not being a lawyer, that in this appellate division of New York, if you're a party to a lawsuit, you can't serve the papers, which I did to the Board of Elections. So I was thrown out on a technicality. That's why we need lawyers. I, I didn't have a lawyer at that time. Um, so I think, you know, first we got to find the lawyers. Then, of course, we got to raise the money. And I urge people to go to Matthew Ho's website and make a donation. They're going to court. Uh, we know the Democrats have basically a bottomless pit, bottomless pit of money and resources. The uh, Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee has millions of dollars. The Elias Law Firm has a lot of lawyers experienced in this stuff. So it's a real challenge. So we need to raise money so that 
the North Carolina Greens can win that case, which I think they'll have a good argument. Uh, they had the signatures, and what happened in the hearing was the Democrats said, well, there's a question about some of the signatures, none of which were uh, signatures that were validated. So we're be, as one of them said, I can't in good conscience vote this petition through. Even though the previous election, 2020, all the presidential uh, petitions, they didn't examine a single signature. They only examined them this time because the Elias Law Group is out there soliciting uh, people to say uh, they want their name off the ballot, off the petition. And so that uh, got the Board of Election doing this investigation, which didn't find the Greens were short, just put a quote unquote cloud over it. So I think the Greens have a good case in court, but they need the legal representation and the money to pay for court fees and uh, the lawyers you know, need to get paid, too. So, you know, but I think the main thing for those of us in localities is we should be finding lawyers in our area that are uh, no election law and are willing to go to bat for us when we have to go to court to defend our petitions or our ballot lines. Amy L. Sachs, it's magical how Dems whine about Republican lawyers aiding disenfranchised Greens. But if they didn't F with us so much, we wouldn't need these lawyers. Yeah, we got a lot of grief in Wisconsin because we went to court with a Republican lawyer. The fact is we you know, got a list of progressive lawyers in Madison from a, a, a Green that used to be in Madison, had good contacts. None of them responded. Uh, you know, we, we contacted all the Democratic and independent election lawyers we could find. None of them would help us. Um, so we had to go with a Republican lawyer. And, uh, you know, that's just the reality. And, you know, then the Dems want to turn around and say, as Rachel Maddow did on her, you know, cable program, she said, we really are a Republican op, the Greens, in our efforts to get on a ballot in Wisconsin. And that was a baseless smear, but she's a conspiracy monger. And uh, that was a narrative that ran not just there, but in Democracy Now!, um, where else did I see it? Uh, Business Insider. I mean, that was the narrative that, that that was the main narrative in the media. And the narrative was that we were stopping the mailing of absentee ballots in Wisconsin. And uh, the mailing hadn't started. The Milwaukee Sentinel Journal called around to election administrators in Wisconsin after the Democrats alleged, and these officials on the Board of Elections, or it's called the Elections Commission, in uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin Elections Commission, uh, had claimed they were being mailed out. And the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel said, we can't find anybody who's mailed any out. And so the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel corrected the record. But then these, you know, liberal media outlets like the Rachel Maddow Show and Democracy Now! and Business Insider ran with the original narrative. Uh, so by the time the court decided against us, after sitting on those petitions for our, our, we filed and the court dawdled for 11 days and let this thing about us blocking the mailing of ballots. And then their ruling was we can't rule on the merits of the case, not on the facts of the law of the case, because the deadline for mailing uh, ballots is now, absentee ballots is now two or three days away. So they said we're too late, even though they sat on the case for 11 days and they had all the briefs they needed to make their decision. I mean, that's the kind of, stuff we run into and uh um you know and and the democrats you know set it up that way in wisconsin i mean when the the issue in wisconsin was whether angela walker's address was correct on some of the petitions she moved during the middle of the petition process so the early petitions had her first address and then after august 1st when she was in her new place uh the petitions had the next address and uh the person who filed objections uh, said the address was wrong, but they didn't document that it was. So in this insufferable two and a half hour hearing, uh, it was surreal. It was divorced from reality. They, they said right at the beginning that our campaign manager, Andrea Marita, couldn't uh, introduce any evidence. And so then it became a debate, well, is the burden on the person who objected or on the burden on the Green Party to prove their claims about the address. 
At one point, a Republican said, well, why don't we get Angela Walker in on the Zoom call and let her testify for herself? Because the Democrats are saying anything Andrea said would be hearsay. And the Republican chair of the meeting said, no, you can't do that. I'm ruling that out. It's too late to introduce evidence. We got to go on the record. And we assumed we could introduce our evidence at the hearing. So it was a setup. And, uh, you know, it's it's something you need. You need lawyers who know the ins and outs. And there's often unspoken rules or, you know, regulations that are not in the law, but have been promulgated by boards of elections and various decisions they make that if you don't know about, they can catch you and, you know, basically knock you off the ballot on a technicality. So, you know, we do need our own lawyers for sure. Eric Gray, advice for prospective local candidates like myself who would be running against well-known Democrats and or Republicans in our respective communities, basically overcoming name recognition issues. Well, uh, door knocking. I mean, go out, introduce yourself, listen to people. Most people aren't so concerned about policy. They're not policy wonks. They judge you personally. Are they? Are you somebody they feel will represent them? Look out for them. Uh, so it's a gut feeling more than it is a intellectual exercise in, in policy. Although you know your policies are important too. So I would say in local elections, you got to the way to get known is to knock on doors, um, and then of course uh, you got to cultivate the local media, find out what reporters are covering the race, uh, and what media are, and then you know give them good stories, make their job easy, write a press release that's like a news story, you know, with quotes from you and maybe a supporter, um, and you know keep them bite-sized, you know, like a news story. So it's, you're not trying to say everything in one news release. And uh, sometimes, you know, papers will just run with your news release. We just had a story out from the Yonkers Times that just cut and pasted verbatim uh, in a, a major part of the story, a news release that uh, Gloria Matera, my running mate, and I sent out. And, um, you know, it just made it easy for the reporter who was covering uh, the fact that, you know, the title was Big Names Off the Ballot. I was one of the big names. The Libertarian candidate, Larry Sharp, was one of the names they considered big, as well as a uh, Republican who was a pro-choice Republican, had run in the Republican primary, but also had a petition for a party called Unite, which is about, you know, election reforms. I mean, we, we work with them on that. Um, so those are the big names. But in any case, they just took our news release and, and just pasted it right in. It's, what they wanted. So, um, and then uh, in relating to those journalists, um, if they write something you don't like, you know, explain to them what you think they got wrong, but don't be, you know, hostile or, um, you know, alienating toward them because you got to cultivate a relationship um, whenever possible. So, you know, be friendly, be helpful, um, and help them do their job, and then you get some media coverage. And when you're in the media, for a lot of people, that sort of validates that you're a real serious person. I mean, it's just the way a lot of voters think. So I would say that's another thing. Uh, but if it's a local election, name recognition is not a problem. If you're, you know, going door to door, introducing yourself, uh, you leave a personal impression, you leave them with a piece of literature that's got your name on it. And, uh, you know, the more you can do that, you know, if you can, you know, go back to that door and, you know, start early and talk often and, uh, you know, going back, you, you know, you just can be checking in, you know. Um, so what are you hearing about the campaign? Can I answer any questions? You know, I'm still running and I uh, hope I can get your vote, you know, things like that. Um, so that's what we can do in local elections, you know, as it gets toward state assembly, depending on the state, like in New Hampshire, the assembly districts are smaller than most, you know, city council districts around the country. Uh, they have something like 400, 365, something like that, uh, state house representatives. So each each representative represents like a thousand people, something like that, or maybe 1,500 people. Um, but then in other states, it's quite large. So as you get to those larger districts, then your media presence has a bigger uh, impact because the door knocking, you know, it's hard to knock 
like in a congressional district with 700,000, population of 700,000. Um, you got to target your door knocking there. But, you know, re realize that when you knock on a door and you talk to somebody and get a good impression, they're going to talk to people. So one door knock could, could mean, you know, six people hear about you. And one of the rules uh, that, you know, political uh, campaign managers go by is that it really takes about six encounters with your name. Uh, you know, personal, they see it in an ad, they see it in a yard sign, uh, they see it in the paper before they'll remember your name. Uh, so that's another thing to keep in mind. So, you know, door knock and then door knock again. Or phone call. Um, you know, you don't have to knock on every door. Phone calling is second best. Um, the thing that in, in this research bears out, the way to be per persuasive with people is to listen to them and then relate where you can, where your values are in common. And it's called deep canvassing. It means not just a flyby, uh, you know, introduce yourself and give them the flyer and then move on to the next door kind of encounter, but one where you actually stop and listen. And so instead of a three or four or five minute encounter, it's a, you know, maybe a 20, 15, 20, even 30 minute encounter, but that has a much bigger impact. And you got to remember those people talk to other people. Um, and those kind of conversations change people's minds. That's, you know, the research shows. So you need that deep canvassing going on all the time. I mean, as you get near election day, you, you're going to want to do some of that uh, quicker canvassing because you're going to be trying to ID your supporters, keep a list so you can pull them out to the polls. That's crucial. And too many greens. That's just like politics 101. And that's how you get the vote. But if you don't do that, and you show up on election day and you don't have a list of people you know support you that you got to you know call and make sure they voted and you can at election polls at least in New York you can see who voted so you have a list of your supporters in that precinct or election district and you check them off as they vote and then you know in the middle of the afternoon you see who hasn't voted then you start contacting those people get them out to the polls that's how you win that's how the working families party beat me in that race that I lost by 98 votes. We were doing the same thing, but they had a list and, you know, a little army of paid people to, to pull that off. So it's really important that you canvas, you talk to people, but also keep a list. You know, are they supporting you? Are they supporting the other candidates? Or are they uh, uncertain where they are? And those are people you may want to go back to and, you know, see what they're thinking a few weeks later. Vicki Corden, how can we fight gerrymandering? I see no greens even at local level in Florida. Well, that's that's really two questions. I, you know, to fight gerrymandering, I think we should go straight to proportional representation because when you have proportional representation in multi-member districts, it's virtually impossible to gerrymander those districts to favor one party or another because every party is going to get its share of uh, representation based on its voting support. Um, so, you know, people talk about independent redistricting and, you know, uh, but the problem is if you're dealing with single member district winner take all elections, you're going to have bias. Most districts are going to be majority one or the other major parties. They're not going to be competitive. And so those seats are safe. And even when you have independent redistricting, a lot, you know, they tend to go they don't want to disrupt the lines too much. So you reproduce the gerrymandered safe districts that already existed. I think that's a diversion. We should go straight. The way to end gerrymandering is proportional representation, proportional ranked choice voting, proportional or ranked choice voting in multi-member districts. Now, no greens even at the local level in Florida. Um, well, if that's your locality, then uh, you, know, you should contact the state uh, uh, party and see what greens they have on their list there and start organizing, you know, meetings and, and seeing who wants to do stuff. And then, you know, find other people, not everybody who's on a green list or registered. I don't know if they keep uh, party enrollments in Florida or whether it's more an open primary state, but uh, even those lists, a lot of people, they just, you know, they favor the green party, they enroll in it, tell the state they want to vote in those primaries, but 
otherwise they don't really want to be involved. Um, so you need to be, you know, recruiting among people who are active on the issues we're concerned about, like, you know, universal public health care or a Green New Deal program for climate protection and economic justice. And then, you know, start being active on those issues. And, you know, that can be, I think public educational meetings is underused by the Greens. We tend to like to come out and jump up and down with signs and protest, but that's periodic. We should have an ongoing public education program. Um, you know, a lot of people want to get involved in the Green Party to learn and to take action. So I think uh, those are the kinds of things we need to be doing at the local level, rather than just having business meetings where, you know, uh, we go over to bylaws or figure out who the officers are going to be. A lot of people, um, they're really not in it for that. You know, they, they'll defer to people that want to do that. And these people are important to do the administrative side. They want to be, you know, want to take action on the issues and they want to learn more about politics and about the issues. So those are the kind of activities we need to do to build our locals. Um, but, you know, I, I all I can do is urge people to organize locals and, uh, you know, build your base there. Um, I see too many Greens kind of float up to the state or national level without any base. And so they're really uh, trying to make decisions for an organization without many legs on the ground. And it's, it's the grassroots level where uh, we build a base that will have an impact at larger scales as that base grows. Yeah, primaries are closed in Florida, so you must have party registration. So you can get a list of greens in your you know, locality, whatever the jurisdiction is, a city or county, uh, probably from the state board of elections. And it should be a low fee. I don't know, in New York it is, it's reasonable. Florida, God knows with DeSantis, but um, those are public records, so you should be able to get them. That would be one list to start working with. Violet at Content Boutique. Any thoughts on the execution of Jalen Walker and qualified immunity? Absolutely, qualified immunity. That's one issue that I really want to push in this gubernatorial campaign we have. Um, it happens that my state assembly representative, uh, who I'm in the same American Legion post with, she's a military veteran, uh, has a law to do that. And, you know, she needs support. She got my support, but it's something we got to push statewide. And, yeah, I saw the video. I mean, the guy, you know, they were going to stop him for uh, a traffic violation. And he, you know, drove on a little bit and then stopped the car, started running. And they shoot him. A hundred shots fired, 60 hit him for a traffic violation. That's cold-blooded murder, and it's inexcusable. And the problem is cops have this qualified immunity, which means uh, they're immune from being sued for violating people's civil rights, like happened to Jalen Walker. That's got to end. Otherwise, the cops can do stuff like this with impunity and uh, that's just part of the problem. I mean, we, we got another case where these Boy Scouts in Michigan and some town found that all the uh, firing range targets were black men, um, you know, black men pictures. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of racism that is endemic in our police department. So we need to end qualified immunity so we can hold these people accountable. But we also need to weed out the racists and really reorganize these departments from top to bottom. Um, and that's a big job. That's why, you know, community control of the police was a big issue in our 2020 presidential campaign. And that's an issue we can do at the local level. You really can't do much at the federal level, although the article that I, I wrote up on that is on the website, um, you know, talked about what could be done through the Justice Department to encourage community control um, and to fund it. But, uh, so that's something we can do at the local level. And, you know, you got to make the cops accountable to the community they serve. And in a lot of cases, you know, it's a black community that's uh, being uh, policed by, you know, mostly white police force from outside the community. And that's where you get a lot of these situations 
then end up with what happened to Jalen Walker. And that's just, uh, you know, that one is just one of the really bad ones we've seen. Austin Whiteside, have you talked to socialist alternative or chapters of other leftist groups? I know in North Carolina, the head of SA Social Alternative talked with Ho and hoping they are reaching out to help with the situation or spread the word. Uh, yeah, I, I've talked to Social Alternative. They've endorsed me in, in a number of my uh, races, including the 2020 presidential race. Um, and I've talked to other leftist groups. I got the Social Party nomination in 2020, uh, approached, you know, some of these progressive third parties in the states about their endorsement. That was mixed. Uh, mainly the marijuana, you know, legalization parties were the ones that definitely would support me. The others uh, vary from state to state, but, you know, they, they didn't get on board. But I'm all open to that. I think we need... Uh, you know, the big issue that we all share, the, the thing that unifies us is we want a, a broad left party to the left of the Democrats. And, uh, you know, Social Alternative, they have their own very tight organization, but they say they want a broad labor-based independent party of the left. And, uh, you know, I want that. So um, I'm all for that. There is no presence of Social Alternative in my community, Syracuse. There is in New York City. And they've generally gave me support. In 2018, they seemed to hesitate because Cynthia Nixon was running as a progressive challenge to uh, Cuomo in the primaries. And that seemed to put a little pause in them. And occasionally, like one point, they were supporting uh, Bernie Sanders in the primaries in uh, 2016. And um, they urged a safe state strategy on the left. Um, and, you know, I criticized them in an article in Counterpunch for that. So, you know, but, you know, I thought they were um, relaxing their commitment to independent politics, so I called them on it. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not willing to talk to them. I think they've done a great job keeping Shama Sawan in uh, office in, in Seattle and, uh, you know, are campaigning for the, the right issues, you know, from raising the minimum wage to single-payer health care and so forth. So, um, yeah, we should be having those discussions with uh, those independent groups on the left. Um, I would avoid the sectarian groups that really are about recruiting members to their own party, not about building a broad left. And uh, you can figure out who they are by working, trying to work with them. Violet Content Boutique. Loss of our Miranda rights worries me too. What exactly is covered by Miranda? Well, that's the, uh, it came out of the Supreme Court decision that said that uh, when you're arrested, the officer should read you your rights. You have the right to remain silent. Um, I can't, I can't remember exactly what they say, but right to remain silent is one thing. Anything you say can and will be used against you. I think it says you have a right to have a lawyer present. Um, so people who are arrested are told that by the officers that arrest them. That was the Miranda uh, rights. And uh, the Supreme Court just said, no, nah, they don't have to do that. The police don't have to do that. So that just makes it easier for the cops to uh, get somebody who's not aware of their rights to get people to say stuff that will be used against them in prosecution. And, and we have too many examples uh, that have been documented in court of police, uh, you know, pressuring, even torturing suspects into admitting to things they did not do. That's why the Miranda rights are important, so that defendants can be represented by a lawyer and know that, uh, you know, that anything they say can and will be used against them, and it will. So, uh, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't care about defendants. I mean, the other decision they, they uh, made was that a uh, uh, death row defendant who had new evidence that could have exonerated him uh, didn't get didn't need it didn't didn't it, his request for a hearing was denied by a lower court and the Supreme Court sustained that 
which means, you know, death penalty uh, defendants as well as other defendants seeking relief when new uh, evidence comes out uh, won't necessarily get that. And uh, that really undermines some of the uh, rights in the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. Should Biden pack the court? Yeah, I think he should. Um, I think uh, we also need to set term limits, and Congress can do that. Um, so, like, if they're 18-year term limits, you'd have, and they were staggered, you would have a Supreme Court justice leaving the bench every two years, which means every president would normally have two appointments. Um, I think you need that. So, you know, what we got now is, um, I think all the, no, not all of them. Well, we've had a conservative majority on the court for 50 years, and most of them have been appointed by Republicans, even though Democrats under Clinton and Obama, you know, there were 16 years there, uh, as well as Carter's four years. So that's 20 years in the last 50 years where there were Democrats uh, as president. And of course, Democrats have majorities in the Senate many of those years, which also has a role in picking Supreme Court justices. Uh, but the way it's worked out, uh, because this, you know, McConnell in the Senate wouldn't give Merrick Garland a hearing, but he rushed through Amy Coney Barrett. Um, so you have, you know, an extra couple of uh, Republicans on the uh, right wingers on the Supreme Court. So, you know, it would be justified for Biden to attempt to pack the court, um, that would be a big debate and a controversy. But I think politically it would be good for Biden and the Democrats because it would show they're fighting. Right now they look like they're rolling over. And uh, if nothing else, you know, saying we want more Supreme Court justices and we want to appoint them would, uh, you know, tell the Democratic base, which is worried about losing the House and the Senate in this election, that the Democrats will fight for them right now. You know, their base is wondering, why should I vote for them? They don't do anything anyway. Amy L. Sachs, but when was the last time the Dems put anything but tepid centrists on the court? Well, you're right. I mean, it's, it's sort of a choice between extreme right-wingers and tepid centrists. There was a study, a law review article, I remember when Nader was running in 2000 and, and uh, you know, Democrats are doing their usual thing. The Supreme Court is the only issue and you got to vote for the Democrats so the Republicans can't appoint. And that article showed that Clinton's appointees were more conservative than George Bush's or Ronald Reagan's. And uh, what happened under Clinton was particularly on the issues affecting corporate power and economics, uh, the tepid centrists were really militant neoliberals on economics, like Breyer, who just, re, you know, re, retired. And uh, that's been a problem. Um, so on the other hand, you know, I would argue that a tepid centrist is better than an extreme right winger when it comes to issues like voting rights and abortion rights, uh, the rights of defendants. You know, there is a difference. I'm not saying that, that we should all go out and vote for Democrats because of that, because um, there are a whole lot of issues. And if you reduce your vote to one issue, um, you're basically surrendering to the system. They got you trapped. And we need a, a fundamental alternative with, that puts forward systematic change. Vicki Corden, what do you think about the case that could create more voter suppression? The Supreme Court will look into that case next week. It seems very autocratic. I'm not sure what case you're referring to because they are, uh, you know, they're on, I guess, recess until the fall when they start hearing cases. You may be referring to the case out of North Carolina, which is uh, nominally about gerrymandering. The uh, state Supreme Court, I believe, ruled the uh, districts that Republicans gerrymandered in North Carolina are unconstitutional. And uh, so the Republicans are appealing to the Supreme Court, saying that uh, the legislature can do whatever the hell it wants. 
according to that elections clause in the U.S. Constitution. That's the independent state legislature doctrine, um, which is very fringe in, you know, uh, case law. It was obliquely mentioned, I believe, by uh, Thomas or Scalia in the Gore, uh, Bush v. Gore uh, decision in 2000, which also said this should not be precedent for anything else, which is crazy. Um, so I think if that's the case you're referring to, it's very dangerous because basically it means uh, state legislatures can decide we get to count the votes, we get to decide who wins, no matter what the voters say, no matter what the state governor says, no matter what the state courts say, no matter what the state constitution says. And what that means in 2024, if they lose uh, the popular vote for the electors for president, they can put their own slate and send that to the Senate for certification. That's what would happen is if this independent state legislature doctrine is uh, approved or affirmed by the uh, Supreme Court. And that's the argument that these North Carolina Republicans are bringing to that case. So it's very dangerous. I mean, it, it basically would set it up so we'll have rigged elections. And, of course, the Democrats will uh, feel like they got to do it in the states they control uh, just to even things out. And, and pretty soon you're going to have politicians who are, uh, you know, entrenched in office because of gerrymandering uh, deciding who wins elections, federal elections. It's a very dangerous case. Mecha one, what is the likelihood of unifying the fractured left party under the Green Party? I'm involved in DSA, CPUSA, and with the PSL, we could do as the French have done and create a united leftist front. Yeah, I'm for that in theory. The problem is DSA and, and CPUSA, that's the communists, uh, support Democrats, and they have for decades. So I'm not sure they're really on the independent left. And PSL, Party for Socialism and Liberation, is, uh, you know, very sectarian. They got their front groups. They like to control peace demonstrations. They, they're not building a mass party. They're building a, a cadre of their uh, PSL. So, um, you know, one of the problems in doing a united left is finding uh, partners to the Green Party that have a base. And, you know, in, you know, the Socialist Party is politically compatible. They don't have a big base. Um, some of these state parties I mentioned that have ballot lines, the Citizens Party in South Carolina, the Progressive Party in Oregon, uh, they're very small. They don't bring a big base. Now, you know, I tried to convince them we should run a unified campaign for various reasons. They didn't go with that. Uh, there was a marijuana party in Minnesota that did, but it wasn't a fusion state. So we got the greens on the ballot line. So they just endorsed me. Um, so um, I think we do want, you know, unity on the independent left. The problem is there's not much organized independent left. And uh, so I guess what I'm saying is uh, we need to build the green party. And if anybody else builds something real, we should work together and, and find a way to work together. Violated content boutique. I just wonder if street protests are the thing to do anymore. Has anything changed for the better from them? Yeah, it has. Um, we know from the mass demonstrations against the Vietnam War, particularly the uh, moratoriums in October and then November 1969, convinced Nixon and Kissinger that their secret plan to end the war, which was to use tactical nukes in North Vietnam, would provoke, they thought, a revolution. Uh, it would have produced more mass protests. Um, I don't know if we were in a revolutionary situation then. I was in the movement. I, I sort of had a feel for what was going on then. I don't think we had... Uh, people wanted to get out of Vietnam. They, they didn't want a revolutionary change in our government or our system. Uh, but it scared Nixon and Kissinger into not executing their plan. 
And, you know, we know that from memoirs and reporting from people like Seymour Hirsch. Um, so, uh, yeah, it can make a difference. And, and that's just one example. Um, on the other thing, on the other hand, <coughs> too much of what we have now in the streets is not that organic. I mean, the, the demonstrations after the George Floyd murder, that was organic. That just was a groundswell across the country. <coughs> Occupy Wall Street, same thing. But on the other hand, most of what we have now are organized by non-profiteers who get money from liberal capitalists uh, through foundations to organize around issues. And so they tend to be episodic. A lot of those protests tend to be choreographed. Um, you know, like I went to the poor people's campaign uh, sit-in at uh, the Capitol on their, you know, the first thing they did it when they when they got started, and um, they weren't ready to disrupt, and the cops just wore them out. I've been to other demonstrations inside the Capitol, so-called sit-ins, where after I was arrested, I was out in 20 minutes. They had it down to a science. The state troopers had an assembly line to get you booked and every, all the paperwork stamped and signed, and you were out of there quickly. So, you know, the system could accommodate that. We might as well have been out in the, you know, street, not got arrested and just, you know, made our point that way. Um, so uh, it depends. But uh, I think they do things. They let the public know. Uh, now, another problem is getting our, our actions covered. And that's why we need to build relationships with the media and then give them news releases that are, you know, good stories in themselves that are interesting uh, are the kind of thing the paper thinks would bring eyes to the, or the TV station. That's another thing. You got to think about the visuals because TV stations are more interested in the visual they see than the content of what you're saying. Um, and then when people watch it, they get an impression from that visual. I've had, I've been quoted in speeches and uh, you know, they'll have that visual and, you know, I asked people, well, did what I say make sense? What did you think of what I said? And they said, I don't remember what you said, but, you you know, you look good. You look like you really meant it. So, you know, that's that the nature of that medium. Um, so the other thing I'll say is if we just run candidates without being out there in various ways before the public between elections, then people think we're just about being in office. And they haven't heard about us, so we're kind of unknown. On the other hand, if we just protest, you know, in the end, we're lobbying the Democrats, the more liberal of the two parties. And if we don't have an independent alternative to vote for, the Democrats will take the protest for granted and maybe give us some lip service. But no, they really don't have to do anything because we're not going to take our votes to the Republicans. And, uh, you know, we're either going to stay home or vote for the Democrats. So we need to do both. Okay, well, that's been an hour, and I appreciate everybody being here. I thank you for the questions. And, uh, you know, I think it goes back to we've got to build our local bases, run our local candidates, the things we talked about today about uh, deep canvassing, doing that year-round, uh, having public educational events, being out there on the street when it's appropriate. All that has to come together with uh, – elections and it's at the local level where we can have an immediate impact you know i don't know what the exact percentage but something like a third of the races greens run they win and a lot of these local races they're actually looking for people to do the work um on various boards and even uh you know town councils certainly um so there's plenty of opportunities and that's where we begin to build a base in the political system it strengthens all our arguments for policies we want changed at the state level and national level for uh, election reform, fair ballot access, ranked choice voting, proportional representation. And uh, so I urge people, you know, we're in the summer. It's a good time to, you know, uh, start meeting, but, you know, plan what you can do in the fall when people are back to their normal routine and, uh, you know, get ready for uh, what's coming up. And so, um, 
that's all I got today. Thank you for, for being here, and uh, we'll be here next week, and we'll continue the discussion. Uh -huh.